the supply and demand imbalance, which is very real, favoring multifamily owners, if that inflation keeps going up and or if you get great deals that are undervalued and you can value add the deals, that inflation might override the downturn this time. You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, everyone. I'm Annie Dickerson here with the fabulous Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I'm doing great. You know, it's funny. I saw this Instagram like reel yesterday and it was like, well, I guess it was pulled from TikTok, but it was like these two babies and like one of them, it was that well, I'm not even going to try to sing, but it was a really <laughs> funny song. <laughs> and the baby's head, you, everyone who's listening, you can't see my head, but it was like the baby's <laughs> head, like doing this little like jiggle. And on the screen, it splashed like moms excited about kids going back to school. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, and you feel the feeling as you're listening to this one particular song and watching the head bobble and everything. And We just started school on Monday and we started our homeschooling on Monday. And I'll be honest, I felt like the littlest inkling of jealousy because I've had my kids now, this will be the second year that we'll have our kids home with us every day. And it is wild where they're just around 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and and they don't go anywhere. It's hard because you have to get time away and you've got to balance out the days and everything. But Yeah, it's funny. It's back to school season. So yeah, I'm sure you feel that way because you're like, yeah, kids are back to school. Yeah, my kids are back in school. I'm back in the carpool lane. That's what my days look like. But when you mentioned Instagram, you know, the first thing I thought of was the listeners know we talk all the time about how completely different the two of us are, right? (laughs) It's like, you're white, I'm black, you're high, I'm Uh low. Like, it's like we're complete opposites on almost everything except a very you, Keithy, our Venn diagrams have like very little overlap, but there are some things in the middle. And funny enough, our Instagram names. Mm -hmm. So for all the listeners out there, go find Julie Mooley Mm -hmm. and Uncanny Banani. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that the funniest? Like, like, I've thought many times about trying to change my Instagram name to something more professional, you know, LinkedIn-ish. Right? (laughs) What? No, I'm just going to keep it. And when I saw that yours was Julie Mooley, I thought that was so fitting and so perfect. That's one of the few areas where we actually overlap. (laughs) The important thing, you guys, everybody who's listening, is Annie and I are like a married couple. You see, we're very different and that's what attracts us. But the core of like who we are and like what we believe in is like right and wrong is like totally in alignment, which is like the funniest thing because when it comes to stuff that we're really passionate about or things that irritate us or we get annoyed about, we're like right in line with each other. We totally see eye to eye, but like everything else beyond that, we're like so different. So (laughs) that's right. Real estate investing, life by design, sushi, (laughs) And silly Instagram names. Those are about the only things, but they're all the important (laughs) things. 
<laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, speaking of married couples, our our guest today has been happily married for over 35 years. And it's one of the things he talks about on the show and how that makes brings him so much joy. And he talks about some of the things that he and his wife have gone through over the years and paying off debt, as well as trying a whole bunch of different things in real estate. And of course, I'm talking about Paul Moore. He's the founder and managing partner at Wellings Capital. And this is his second time on the Life and Money show. If you haven't, go back all the way to episode number 26 to find his original episode where he really dives into his story. But in this episode, we sort of go through the highlights of his story and he'll talk about his shiny object syndrome where he tried a lot of different things. But more importantly, he shares with us, given everything that's happening in the economy now, what he's looking at, what he's investing in, and what he sees might be coming down the pipe. Mm -hmm. Something that he said very early on in the show, you had asked him a question around what are his top three lessons that he learned from a lot of his early failures, which I always love asking that question and getting insight into people's failures so that I can learn from other people's mistakes instead of doing it myself. But he gave three. I won't go through all three. But one of the, the ones that really stuck out for me was when he said to make sure that you quit early. And he goes in and he talks about more in detail. I won't get into it here, but he talks more in detail about what does that even mean to make sure that you quit early. And there have been I've done a bunch of different stuff before I came to finally get into real estate as you did too, Annie. And it's just an interesting thing because I think that traditionally it's been, you go out and you find something and you stick with that for like 35 years, like our parents' generation. And I think that as the generation has moved on to me and to you and generations underneath us, we're a lot more free to explore and to feel like it's okay to let go of the things that we know doesn't work for us and doesn't serve us and doesn't bring us joy and all of these things. And who knows, Marie Kondo probably contributed <laughs> to part of that as well. If it doesn't spark joy, we got to let it go. Not just personal items, but things we do in life as well. But I thought it was just so interesting because I think I've been asked that question too before, like, you know, what are the things that you think you need in real estate to really be successful. And I always say persistence. It's like one of the biggest things because you're always going to come across obstacles and whatnot. But knowing when to quit and knowing when something is not the right fit for you was such good advice. And it's not often spoken about. So yeah, it was such a fun show. Paul has done so much in the space. He's a regular contributor at Bigger Pockets as well. And I always enjoy reading his articles. They're always very insightful. So it's such a, a fun time to have him on the show today. Indeed. I mean, for all the listeners, if you haven't, go check out Paul's resources, Paul's books. He's an author of multiple books. And as you'll hear on this show, he just brings a ton of insights and data, more importantly, to his distinctions. And he's gone through multiple cycles and downturns. So he'll share in this episode what he sees as sort of different this time around, as well as where we currently are. But if you're listening to this show, and maybe you're in the beginning stages and you're just dipping your toes in the water, getting to know this whole world of real estate and in particular real estate syndications. You want to know what this whole thing is about. We've got a great resource for you. It's a copy of our book. It's called Investing for Good and it'll take you through all the ins and outs 
how the process works, the risks, the benefits, all of it. And so we've got a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodegginvestments.com slash book. With that, let's jump into our conversation with Paul Moore. Paul, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Annie. How are you? Ah, we are great and so thrilled to have you here, especially since, Paul, for the listeners who have listened to your previous episode way back, episode number 26, you all heard all of the incredible experience that Paul brings to the table. But Paul, it's particularly relevant now in the face of everything that's shifting in the economy to sort of have you back on the show and share your thoughts and insights on what you're seeing. But before we get into that, share with the audience you know, I know you've done all sorts of things. You've done fix and flips, rental properties, development projects, hotels, multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks. I could probably go on and on. So tell us a little bit about your journey in real estate and share with us a little bit about how you got to where you are now. Yeah, I think you were just highlighting some of my failures there, actually, because <laughs> you remember I had a podcast called How to Lose Money. Mm -hmm. And on that show, we talked about all the different ways people make mistakes on their way to success. And one of my big mistakes was chasing shiny objects for years. And so I sold my company to a public firm in 1997, 25 years ago. And then I started investing in real estate to protect and grow my own wealth. I thought I'm a full-time investor now, but I really was <laughs> more of a full-time or well, part-time investor and part-time speculator. I didn't know the difference. And you know, you know, and your audience knows this, but I mean, investing should be boring. Paul Samuelson, the first Nobel Peace Prize winner from the US in economics, said that investing should be more like watching paint dry and watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. And I didn't know that. For years, I thought I should get the same fun and excitement out of investing that I got out of being an entrepreneur previously. And it was fun, but it wasn't always profitable. And so, yeah, I flipped a lot of houses, like 60 houses, and they were mostly profitable. Did a small subdivision, built some houses, big mistake. And since I don't know how to tighten the doorknob on my own house, that really wasn't smart. But over those years, I thought, how do I get involved in commercial real estate. It looks like the big players, the real wealthy people are in commercial. And I didn't know where the on-ramp was. 20 years ago, syndication wasn't as famous, even though it's existed for like a hundred years or probably hundreds of years. And eventually I got involved in a ground up multifamily in North Dakota and then another one next door. And this was for oil workers flocking to North Dakota for the big oil boom over a decade ago. And eventually I decided to stay in multifamily for the rest of my life. And I told my wife, I promise I'm going to stay in multifamily from now on. And I wrote a book called The Perfect Investment, which we talked about on your other show. And I found out for me and for our company, we failed because we didn't have a great acquisition team. We didn't know where to find the deals. And that's key to what I think we should talk about today, honestly, is the importance of finding the right deals in a market that's flooded by people overpaying. But at any rate, the perfect investment wasn't perfect for me. So I went on to develop a fund like you have, and our fund invests in different asset classes like multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks, RV parks, et cetera. And we invest with different operators across the US. And so that's my 25-year history in real estate in four minutes. 
I'm so fascinated by this one thing you said, you couldn't find the on-ramp. And I definitely want to hear more about that piece. But before that, you chased all these different shiny objects, tried all these different things, which I think in many ways probably led you to the huge success that you have now seen. But tell us about some of the, maybe the top three lessons that you learned or from the failures that maybe you had over the years in these different asset classes that then led you to know that commercial real estate was the right fit for you. Yeah. Mark Cuban said diversification is for idiots. And Warren Buffett, my investing hero, said diversification is probably for people who don't know what they're doing. And I was really offended about that. But then I dug deeper and found, reminded myself that Berkshire Hathaway has over 110 investments in multiple asset classes, geographies, operators, just like you do and just like we do. He didn't mean what I thought he meant. He meant diversification for an individual operator. I don't think that I as one person or one operator could know how to operate six different assets, especially as a private real estate investor that doesn't have a massive corporation. Well, Buffett only has 28 people in their office. And so they are highly laser focused on doing one thing well, and that's investing in great companies. But they invest with people who are laser focused on one thing and doing that one thing extremely well. And so my first lesson was not chasing shiny objects. Cuban was right. I tried to diversify like myself. I tried to do seven different things at once, including wireless internet. Why would I do that? Anyway, that was my first lesson is not chasing shiny objects. Second lesson was don't quit, especially don't quit too soon. And as a serial entrepreneur, which I hate that title now, but as a serial entrepreneur, I would go way down this learning curve and have these 80 hour weeks and be like almost taking off and then get bored and go do something else. And like, I think if I would have just stayed with one thing, almost whatever it was, except wireless internet, I think I would have done really, really well. So perseverance and everybody knows that lesson, but here's something you might not have heard. Lesson three, make sure you quit early. Huh? Well, what I mean by that is from our How to Lose Money show, we had a ton of guests on there, 238 guests. And a lot of them said perseverance was the key, but a lot of others said stopping early was the key. I didn't know what they meant. I didn't know how those two could both be true, but it's when you realize you're on the wrong path, it's cutting the losses quickly. I mentioned that we beat our head up against the wall for almost five years chasing multifamily. We didn't have the team and the acquisition strategy in place. We should have quit that like early on and done something, done what we're doing now, to be honest. But if you're on the wrong path, if you realize you're on the wrong path, you should cut your losses and move on quickly. The wireless internet company is a perfect example. We started that a long time ago, and we should have realized after the first winter in North Dakota that the radios froze and messed up the whole signal and everything. We should have just stopped. We might've lost a hundred thousand, but instead persisted like eight years and eventually lost a lot more and a lot more time and headache as well. So those were three lessons. And that's something that a lot of investors go through as well. When they see that maybe an investment isn't going the way that they planned, what do you do at that point, right? Do you double down or yeah. do you cut your losses? So that's a really interesting lesson there. It is a hard lesson to learn. Mm-hmm. 
So then take us then to that on-ramp. So you brought all these lessons from all these different things that you had tried, and then you heard about this amazing thing called commercial real estate. So you're looking for the on-ramp. What Mm -hmm. did you do? Who were you talking to? How did you eventually find that on-ramp? Actually, that's a great question. And I'm going to use that as a launching pad to talk about the last one third of my new book on self-storage, which covers that exact question. But the way I did is I accidentally stumbled into it. Honestly, I was really frustrated with real estate and I invested in an oil and gas deal in 2010. I remember 2007 to 11, how hard it was. I wasn't smart enough to be buying real estate left and right during that time. Again, I was more of a speculative mindset and was scared. So I invested in oil and gas when oil was on the way from $30 to $100 a barrel. And as a part of that, my business partner who had a tiny jet would fly up to North Dakota and he could never find a place to stay overnight. He had to fly back to South Dakota or Montana or Colorado even because he couldn't find a hotel. And that's when we realized they're in serious need of housing here. So we literally, I mean, on a Saturday morning, I was there and put an option on a piece of property and we had cabins ordered within days and we were up and running, building this multifamily property. That's how I got in. The last third of my book that I wrote for Bigger Pockets has seven on-ramps to commercial real estate. That's what the whole last third of the book is. And so quickly, again, I think that it's hard to figure out how to get in. And so the on-ramps that I identified in the book are number one would be a stair-step approach where you buy something really small, optimize it, refinance or more likely resell it. That's how it's different from Brandon Turner's Burr method. I would say resell is optimal if you look at the numbers and then buy a bigger asset, rinse and repeat, and just keep going up these stairs. It takes a long time and it's a lot of sweat effort, but it works. Option number two would be being a deal finder, finding deals for somebody else and then offering to partner with them or asking them to partner with you and let you stay in the deal when you bring the deal. On ramp number three, would be being a money finder. And being a money finder is hard because as you and we know, there's a lot of SEC oversight and regulations that make sure that we're doing it right and not getting paid a commission and all those things. But if you have access to a lot of money from other people or skills, that might be a good option for you. Option four would be go big. If you made a lot of money in GameStop or Bitcoin or the lottery or inherited a lot of money, you know, you have $5 million, you can just go in big and just get a great asset management team around you. Option six would be, is that right? No, option five would be get a job. Most of your listeners probably don't like that one. They don't want to get a job. They want to get rid of their J-O-B. But the option here, it's pretty smart. I know a guy who had a really good job as a young guy making 120000 a year as a mortgage lender, he quit that job and took a pay cut to go work in a self-storage facility, but he learned the business from the inside out. He learned all the terms, the technology, the people, and he was able to become an entrepreneur by starting out that way. Rick Graff, the third largest apartment owner in America, to oh no, manager, Pinnacle Properties out of Dallas. He started out as an employee, like a sub-maintenance guy, and he worked his way up to CEO of Pinnacle. So it is possible to do that. Gary Keller sort of did it in real estate, but there's lots of good jobs out there. Option six would be a passive investor. And a lot of your listeners 
And me love that path probably best, letting someone else do the heavy lifting, sort of the Berkshire Hathaway approach again, where Buffett invests heavily in somebody else and lets them do the heavy lifting. And then option seven would be finding a paid coach or an unpaid mentor. And we all know how powerful that can be. Would you say that these days, do you think it's easier or harder to break into the world of commercial real estate than perhaps when you started? I mean, there's all these resources out there, like Mm. your book and all these mentorship and coaching programs. But on the flip side, there's also a lot more people trying to get into this space. So what do you think? Boy, that is a great question. I would say it's easier in the sense that, I mean, you've got your fund and all this, the information you've put out there and all the information we've put out there. You've put out training and mentoring. We have too. Brad Sumrock and all these Lifestyles Unlimited. There's so much information. I don't mean to sound harsh, but it's a great, great time to make a huge mistake. I mean, it's so easy to get enough information and capital and like to be dangerous and these people faulting any of them. But some of the people who are coaching us, coaching these asset classes now, they weren't even in business in real estate five or six years ago. They were doing something else. And some of them were in high school in the great financial crisis. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But if they're now coaching people, some of them are saying it's different this time. There's technology in place that's going to keep you from making mistakes. That's not true. And Brian Burke will tell you clearly, you know, that old thing, that adage, you know, everybody needs a place to live. So multifamily is always going to be fine. That's not totally true. And there are reasons I think multifamily will do really, really well in the coming years. We can get into those later, but it's also true that you can make a big mistake. I know somebody that overpaid by 50% on an asset. They seem to have enough knowledge to be dangerous. They somehow got a bank to finance it. And I don't know what's going to happen to them. But I mean, I can pretty much verify that they overpaid by 50% on this value. It's like the tulip frenzy or the Bitcoin frenzy or whatever. It's possible to speculate and think you're investing. And I did it myself. So I just Mm -hmm. would warn people, don't do that. Yeah. Well, I was just going to ask, with all of that being said, for anyone who's trying to break in using any one of the six strategies for the on-ramp, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people making right now, in your opinion? And what do you think people can do if somebody's trying to break into the industry to mitigate their exposure to risk, whether it be as a capital raiser, raising money, whether it be as a deal finder, whether it be any one of those on-ramps, how do they mitigate that risk? Because I think I 100% agree with you. I think it's just, we know there's so much information that it's just enough to be dangerous, right? And everything that people are doing. So as investors too, right? You could go educate yourself mm-hmm. on blogs and watch a bunch of videos, network at some couple of RIA meetings, and all of a sudden yeah. you feel comfortable and you're like, okay, I'm going to throw a hand over $100,000. So what are yeah. some of your thoughts on that? Yeah. And so this, my answer here, there's so many different sub answers here, but part of it is going to be go try to check your greed. At, I don't mean greed in a really bad way, but try to check your ambitious greed at the door and try to be as much as you can like Buffett, which would be a cold, objective evaluator. Establish some criteria up front and don't deviate from them. 
Some of the criteria would be our mutual friend, Brian Burke, has a great book called The Hands-Off Investor. It's an exhaustive look at how to evaluate a deal and a sponsor, 320 pages, I think, of really, really heavy reading. And I mean, it can be discouraging for an investor who gets that and says, I've got to do all this. You're kidding. And so if you do that, or if you don't do it completely, another thing you can do is go to some of the forums out there to find out what other people are saying. I mean, you should definitely go through that book and ask 100 questions and fly to the deal in person and do all the stuff Brian says. But also, passive investors can go there to the private investor club or to left field investors or to, what is it, the 506 group of these other places. And they can learn a lot about what other people are saying about sponsors. And so that's another thing you can do to mitigate risk. As far as raising capital, follow the rules. We all know, most of us know that the SEC at any time could sweep in and decide to get you in trouble. And it's not worth it. Just because a hundred people didn't get in trouble the last five years doesn't mean that a thousand people won't in the next five. The SEC doesn't play games. That's right. And so, yeah, those are some quick things. I would say just be super objective and don't override your gut. I mean, I believe we were created with about three, I mean, from what I've read, like 3,000 different ways to read someone's integrity and honesty. We don't know almost any of those, though. They're like these deep little internal brain firing in our subconscious. If your gut is telling you something's wrong, it's almost sure that there is something wrong and you should run away. Well, there you go. Run away. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You mentioned something earlier when you were talking about the mentors and coaches and how some have gone through multiple cycles and some have not. And I know you have gone through multiple cycles. And so tell us a little bit about what you're seeing now in the market as compared to maybe what you've seen in previous market cycles and downturns. Great question. Right now, And I mean, right when we're recording this, there's this lag that we have seen in every downturn. And that lag is between seller expectations, buyer expectations, and reality, wherever that is. I don't know, somewhere over here. But what I mean by that is this. Here's just a quick example that will explain the whole thing. I can move on. A seller says to the broker, yeah, I still want 11 million. And the broker says, I think I can get you 10 and a half. This was last year. And the guy's like, yeah, when you can get me 11, call me back. Then the phone doesn't ring. And now 2022, or let's say it was spring this year when things were really changing with interest rates, the guy calls the broker and says, okay, I think I'm still looking for 11 million, but I'm open to offers. And the guy's like, the broker's like, well, no, I mean, now I can't even get you 10 million, maybe nine. And the seller laughs and says, no way. Then the seller in desperation realizes he should have sold a year ago for whatever number I was at, and then calls the broker and says, okay, maybe I'll just take a look at nine. I've only got five. And the broker says, no, I can only get you eight now. Well, they go to market at the seller's price of like 10. And they used to get 60 offers, literally. And you know this, like that 10 million number, and they bid it way up higher. And now they still get two or three. Those two or three 
well, if they get any offers at all, it might be around $9 million now. Like I said, there's this delta between the buyer and seller's brain, but they might only get even two or three offers at that with lots of contingencies, and they're likely to fall out. And so that's where we are at this very minute. I don't know. I think in my past years, I've seen that lag between seller and investor in expectations last, what, six to 12 months. I think we're right there. As far as in general, where we are, I think it's very possible that lag. I think that the downturn we're in right now, the so-called recession might, it just might be that the inflation will still override it. If inflation keeps going in housing prices, but everywhere else in the economy, it, it grinds to a halt. In other words, inflation stops, jobless claims, everything goes up throughout the economy, but somehow or another, the supply and demand imbalance, which is very real, favoring multifamily owners, if that inflation keeps going up and or if you get great deals that are undervalued and you can value add the deals, that inflation might override the downturn this time, unlike 2008. So I think it's possible, not certain, but possible that people that even overpaid a tiny bit last year will do okay now because inflation seems so likely to continue in multifamily. That's what I think. What do you think? We'll get back to our conversation with Paul in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid like we were that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now, back to our chat with Paul Moore. Julie, I'll let you take this one. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting to think about seller's expectations and sort of where we're at right now and what's kind of coming down the pipeline. I think it's interesting. I think that there's 
sellers are waiting for interest rates to come down, basically waiting for the spring. I think that people are anticipating that interest rates are going to come down and take your story a step further, right? I think that they're waiting for that time because I don't know about you and with your deals that you're looking at, but we're not finding a whole lot out there. And what we are finding there's that lag where it just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And so I think that we're going to start to see some deals come online here at in the new year, but we're not going to see it at the discounts that potentially you might be able to get them at now, right? And it just depends what sellers are willing to take. It depends too what market you're in. But some of the deals we're finding now you can get for 10 to 15% off of what you were paying six months ago. It's wild. So not really a good time to sell. Luckily for us, we don't have any deals in our portfolio that we have to sell right now. And so it's a good thing. But if this goes on too long, we could be in a dangerous place. So yeah, 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 I agree. Can I make a quick point about that? Yeah. You said 10 to 15%. Let's do the math here. If somebody bought at 4% cap rate, how much have interest rates moved lately? Just in commercial in your world? Interest rates, what is it like 2%? Yeah, I agree. 2%. 2%. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, the cap rates, and I could be wrong on this, but I would argue that cap rates should have moved about 2%. And if you look mm-hmm. strictly at how they should be calculated with mm-hmm. no emotion, it should have moved 2%. I could argue yeah. 2.2, but let's say 2. If a cap rate, if you bought at 4% cap rate and you heavily leveraged, mm-hmm. and now the cap rate when you go to sell is 6%, You are at best, unless you massively inflated the net operating income through value add and whatever else, Mm -hmm. you are massively underwater. But you just said, I think I did the math on this before. That's like, you need to grow the net operating income, something like 50% just Mm -hmm. to break even. Mm -hmm. But you just said it's 10 or 15% higher. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about. If buyers should be paying at a six cap, but they're still paying at a, what would it be? 4.4 cap, 10% Mm -hmm. less. That's another funny disconnect we're in right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting time. And I feel like I've been saying this for a couple of years now, like things are going to start to shift and things are going to start to change. I think we're finally starting to see that. And we're at the beginning stages of that. And I'm not sure what's coming down the pipeline. But I do want to talk about earlier in the show, you talked about finding deals, the right deals in this market, and how it's a tough time and all of these things. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I'm interested to hear what you're seeing. Absolutely. I think it's an extremely tough time. So what are you seeing out there right now? Yeah. So I mentioned that we failed as an acquisition team. We didn't really know, you know, this was years ago, how to find deals. We were just looking at broker marketed deals and all that stuff. I think the key is finding mom and pop owned deals off market. And so like two of the operators we're investing with, they have teams of people. And I'm talking like eight people working 40 hours a week, just scouring their lists of self-storage, mobile home park owners, folks like that, just calling them, texting them, emailing them up to four times a year. In other words, quarterly, tapping that same person saying, are you ready to sell yet? And they'll have information like, you said your grandson's going to take over the park, but you're not sure he wants to. Have he decided yet? Oh, he's not? Oh, he's off in the army? Maybe it's just best to sell. And so they're tapping these off-market mom and pop owners. Mom and pop owners typically don't have the desire 
the resources or the knowledge to improve their asset and to increase net operating income and therefore maximize return for investors. But as a great operator, if you can find one of those deals, pay them a fair price for it, and then do all that stuff, I mean, you can see massive, massive upside. And to me, that massive upside would be largely reflected by an increasing debt service coverage ratio. Debt service coverage ratio, which the bank wants to see at 20 or 30% minimum, if you can get that ratio of NOI to the debt payment up to 1.8, 2.2, even 2.5, you're talking about an 80 or 100 or even 150% margin of safety between net operating income and the debt payment. And that can really prepare an operator for a downturn, number one. Number two, I mean, just on that point, I mean, if occupancy drops and revenues drop and delinquency increases, like Brian Burke said happened to some of his assets in 2008 that were really well positioned, there's still a cushion. And number two, that's just showing you that you're increasing value at a faster rate than you're losing value because of the economy. And so, I mean, Warren Buffett said, sure, the rising tide has lifted all boats this last decade, but someday that tide's going to go out and then we'll see who's skinny dipping. Well, the way to do that is to swim faster than the tide's going out. And the way to do that is to drive great value, acquire from a mom and pop and drive great NOI. And then even if the cap rate expands under your feet, you're still ahead of the game. Yeah, such good advice. I, I love that analogy. You got to swim faster than the tides go out. I love that. So one thing that I'm wondering is, and I always wonder this about off-market deals, and I've gotten this question in the past as well. If somebody can sell their property for, let's say, $10 million, why in the world are they going to sell it to you for $8 million? What's the thought process behind that? And does off-market, does that really... Is that really a thing anymore? Like I used to think that getting an off-market deal was great, yeah. but most, and I don't know if this depends on who the seller is, right? If it's mom and pop versus like institutional yeah. sellers or whatnot, why would someone want to sell that? And is off-market deals, is that really a, a true deal these days? Yeah. Great question. And I've wondered that sometimes over the years as well. But so from what I understand from a study, 93% of multifamily over 50 units are owned by multi-asset owners. And that typically means, or often means, they're not mom and pop. It doesn't mean they're necessarily institutional, though a whole bunch are, but a lot of them have already gotten the value. They've driven the price up. They've done the counters and cabinets and the flooring and the dog park and all that stuff. And so they've already driven the value up and they've already squeezed out most of the money that's going to be squeezed out. And so it wouldn't really matter if it was off market or on market as much if that's the case. It's different in other asset classes. So another type of multifamily called mobile home parks, there are 43,000 of them out there and about 80 or 85% are owned by true mom and pop owners who don't have the desire or the resources or the knowledge to increase, improve the park and therefore maximize value. So a perfect example, mobile homes deteriorate. In fact, the worst investment I ever personally made over those shiny objects years, like 20 years ago, was in four mobile homes. 
Three of them were a nightmare. Two of the three got hauled off to the dump and literally losing all the value in it because people trashed it. My mom lived in one of them. That went okay. At any rate, she wanted to live near us. And so this was like 20 some years ago on a mountaintop, but that's another life. But anyway, these mobile home parks, like some of them will have a hundred spots and they'll have like 40 vacant slots. It's extremely hard to get somebody at that typically that income and credit level to buy a mobile home and move it in. It's extremely hard to find one used these days. So a mom and pop operator might live with those, let's say 40 vacant spaces out of a hundred and they're doing okay because they don't have any money left in it. They don't have any debt on it. It's been cash flowing for years or decades. They're fine. And to pay them full price, let's say that based on their NOI, their net operating income at a 5% cap rate, let's say you can pay them. I'm kind of making this up because I'm not doing the numbers technically here, but let's say $2 million. But if you're a great operator and you can afford to go fill those 40 vacant spots with new mobile homes, and if you can pass the water sewer and trash back to the tenants, and if you can improve the park in meaningful ways and do all kinds of other things like lease sheds to them and carports for super low price, but you know how the math works on those things. Those are value adds. You can possibly get that, what did I say, $2 million park up to being worth $3.5 million in a couple of years. But $3.5 million versus two, that sounds like a nice increase, but that's a massive increase to the equity. That's over double. That's kind of how it works. Self-storage, 53,000 assets out there. Half of them are owned by mom and pops. RV parks, 8,700 out there, 94% owned by mom and pops. So that's, I think, where a lot of the value is in finding off-market deals. On the mobile home parks, talk to us very briefly about that. What are you seeing in terms of opportunity to acquire mobile home parks as compared to multifamily? Is it as hot as multifamily is? Yeah. Or are you seeing it's prices? It's every bit as hot. Is, yeah, the cap returns? rates are about the same. Really? The cap rates, let's say, are in the 4 to 5% range, or they have been wow. the last year or two, which is wow. stunning considering they were 12 cap just a handful <laughs> yeah. of years ago. <laughs> yeah. The difference is there's still more upside. I mean, we were part of an acquiring a $7.1 million mobile home park that was sold a year later for $15 million. There's just so much upside in some of them, wow. not all. And there's a risk in mobile home parks. Beware, investors. It could be that the government mandates, eviction moratoriums, and just the general sentiment of people, like the one-sided sentiment, pro-tenant sentiment out there could really mess with mobile home park investments. So it's really important that to invest with or be a professional operator. So tell us a little bit about your fund that you said invests in a number of different asset classes. How many different asset classes are there in that one fund? Yeah, there are six asset classes right now, and we're investing in value-add multifamily. We're investing in self-storage, mobile home parks, RV parks, outdoor shopping. And that's kind of a funny one, but I can talk about that if we have time. And then light industrial. Interesting. And how did you come together to think about putting a fund like this together? Yeah. So like I said, it was first of all, based on earlier failures to acquire deals ourselves. Part of it was we just had a lot of investors who were hungry to invest and really trusted us. 
And we just saw the value in the Berkshire Hathaway model of saying, hey, we can't be experts in, at the time it was three or four asset classes, but we can go find the very, very best operators we can can and put them together under one roof. And I think that's what you've done as well. And so we love that model. There's a book from Perry Marshall called 80-20 Sales and Marketing, which shows that the 80-20 rule is fractal, meaning if you get the top 20% of the top 20% of the, let's say, operators, you'll get the top 80% of the top 80, the top 64% of the results from 4% of the operators. If you and we can identify those top 4%, we might get uncommonly good results. Yeah, I love that. That's a lot of math for me right now at this time of the day. (laughs) But I got you. I'm following along. All right. Well, so much good stuff. Appreciate your perspectives, especially with all that you're doing. There's so much good information to share with investors and operators as well who might be listening in terms of where to find those deals, what to look for in terms of risk, all of the things that have been going on over the last few years and kind of where we're at right now. I guess last question would be for you before we move on is what are your thoughts on on where we're at with multifamily? Do you feel like it's still a a good asset class? Are we going to be safe? I know we talked a little bit about the lag time, but what are your thoughts with multifamily? Yeah. So I was at the Real Estate Guys Belize event a year ago, and we got to hear from a guy named Doug somebody. How about that, huh? Okay. (laughs) Poor Doug. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, poor Doug. Now we got to hear from the chief economist at uh, Fannie Mae, and he said that there is a massive imbalance, a massive shortage of housing. And this comes from the fact that we've got baby boomers as the largest, the fastest growing renters, even though it's the smallest group. We've got millennials renting a whole lot. We got Gen Z renting a whole lot. We've got immigrants renting a whole lot. And so just the general trend toward more rentals and more flexibility and being tied down, there is a massive shortage of housing that's never even been made up with all the building we've seen in the last decades since the Great Recession. It's still a shortfall. And so I think that multifamily, at least those that weren't overpaid for, are going to do fine through this recession. They may, rents might go sideways for a year or two, but I think it's going to do fine overall, don't you? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Where do you think multifamily returns are going to go over the next six to 12 months? What do you think investors can expect? Compressed as they are, most deals are nothing in year one if two to 3%. And I always say if you're finding deals that are much beyond that, they're likely raising money to to pay you back and (laughs) get you to the five plus percent. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I know. I totally agree. I think that they should be like, if you're looking at an operator who says that their cash flow is way compressed from three years ago and their total annual returns are lesser than they were before, then that's probably a good sign. As opposed to somebody I saw in Bigger Pockets the other day who was saying that they had a 48% IRR multifamily deal they found through LoopNet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Loopnut's where we found our first deal, right, Annie? <laughs> no, I'm totally just kidding. That's a joke bar- back then, right? Okay. <laughs> Best place to go, that bargain bin. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to move into the last part of our show, the Life and Money Show Spotlight Round, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is around your life and money. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? Yeah. Did you know that if you took the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks and added those together, double that number, that's the approximate number of revenue generated by human trafficking right now. In fact, the US State Department says it's the approximate profit annually uh, generated by human trafficking. And so I'd like to believe that if I was alive in the 1800s or an adult in the 1960s, I would have been fighting for abolition and fighting to free slaves. And well, this is slavery. It's a different kind, but it's a horrible kind. And it's there are more slaves around the world than any time in history. And even since we started this show, there have been about 400 people abducted or sold into slavery. And so I really want to do something about this. And so our company, Wellings Capital, is partnering with different groups, just like we vet commercial real estate operators. We vet nonprofits who are being really effective in this area, and we're donating to them, and we're trying to raise awareness and raise money. So we're looking to raise, with our friends at Collective Genius, we were able to partner to raise 255000 in June. I'm looking to raise more money on Giving Tuesday this November to try to fight trafficking and rescue its victims. Yeah. I didn't actually know a whole lot about it's such a thing that isn't talked about a lot. And and it's not something that most people know that this is even happening, like right under our noses. It's really sad. And I wasn't even really aware either until recently. And it's been a cause that's been important to us as well at at Good Egg. And we've donated as well to a few Mm -hmm. charities. But it's shocking when you start to peel back the layers and really understand what's happening. It's wild. So. That's That's horrifying. I've had two family members impacted by similar crimes against them, not to the level of a traffic victim and not to the level of, if you've seen the movie Redeeming Love, which came out last year, to the level some of those people definitely, it's amazing. But to watch the healing, the decades, and I mean decades of pain that my wife and daughter have gone through, I just can't imagine how much these people have to deal with if they can even live through the horror of what they've gone through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Second question is around others, life and money. So what is one life or money hack? And if you have more than one, feel free to share that you can share that will make an impact in others' lives right now. Yeah, this is kind of crazy, but I was two and a half million. I had a million and a half in the bank in 1997 when I sold my company as a 33-year-old. I had two and a half million in debt 10 years later. And that was some of the real estate speculations I made in those early years. And of course, it was 2008. We were on the eve of 2008. I had no idea how I was going to get out. We made it a very aggressive and crazy plan as a family to start giving our way out of debt. And so we started giving to nonprofits. We didn't know about human trafficking at all. We started giving to charities, church, et cetera. And 30 days into that really aggressive giving, intentional giving thing we were doing, 
we came up with an idea that allowed us to pay off and even make a profit from a huge amount of that. And we ended up completely debt-free one year later in the midst of the great financial crisis. And so I would just say the hack is just really, truly believing and acting on that it's better to give than receive. That is so awesome. So you're saying that you went out there and gave back to your communities through charities and somehow something came back to you to help you get out of your situation. Wow. That's fascinating. I don't think that there's just a universe in the sky or God who's just a vending machine who's going to (laughs) automatically do it, but it really is astonishing how often it really is true. Yeah. I think there almost has to be something that in your mind where you let go, right? There has to be like a letting go. And once you let go and you just give without the expectation of return is when all of the floodgates come down. That's a really good point, Julie. And that's exactly right. Yeah. I love that. All right. Last question is around life and money in the world. And I feel like your answer to the first question kind of answered this, but if there's anything else you want to add as well, what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? Yeah. So I'm going to give a different answer. My son and I were talking about buying a nice car the other day. My son's a 29-year-old real estate investor, and he makes more money than most people in their 20s. And we were talking about buying a really nice car. And I was like, I know no matter how cool this car is, if it's a Tesla or whatever we were looking at, it's not going to make me really happy. And he said, well, what does make you happy? And I said, in addition to our marriage, my marriage with my wife for 35 years, it's being really, really nice to strangers. I mean, being super intentional, not just strangers, anybody. And so I was flying the next day to do a due diligence trip to New Hampshire And I actually stopped in the Charlotte airport and went up to a young lady working there. And I actually just gave her this, I kind of poured affirmation out on her and I actually gave her a $2 bill, which I carry a huge stack of $2 bills in my briefcase. If you know me, it's not my briefcase. No, I'm just kidding. Seriously. And I give them out to people and I did that. And I was happier from that than the successful due diligence trip. And I did the same thing on the trip home on a plane with four little kids who were sitting in front of me. Crazy. There's some things in life that no matter how much money you have, you can't buy that feeling that you're talking about. Yeah. And in many ways, that's what makes everything that we do worth it, right? The opportunities to create those feelings, to experience those moments, and to make even those small impacts in people's lives. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know. I mean, what's one of the lowest paid, hardest jobs you can think of? It's got to be being a, I don't even know what they're called now, a host, a a maid at a hotel. Unbelievably low paid for, and so if you can be nice to them as you pass them in the hallway or give them a $2 bill or just smile, I mean, it's fun. I think it's helpful for them. I've actually stopped to talk to some of them and they started crying, telling me their horrible stories. They all have a hard, well... Almost all of them have a really hard story. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big believer that everything that you put out comes back to you tenfold. Yeah, so so true. Yes. Well, Paul, I know that our listeners have not only learned a ton, but I'm sure they've been inspired by you and everything that you've shared. So tell them if they want to follow up and learn more about all that you're doing, what's the best place that they can go? 
Absolutely. So like I said, I had a hard time figuring out where the on-ramps were in commercial real estate. So I created an audio book, an ebook, and a little e-course. They're all three the same material. And you can get that at Wellings Capital. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com slash resources. Fantastic. We'll have that link for all the listeners in the show notes. Paul Moore, founder and managing partner at Wellings Capital. Paul, thank you so much for being here with us and our listeners today. It was really great to be here. Thank you so much, Annie and Julie. It's always great to see you. You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations. 